Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Alst from Strata Central. Hi, Arena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm good. It's been a few weeks. You and I have been busy in Strata land. It's great to be back here chatting with you, sharing our wins and our challenges. Let's start with your challenge for the week. Well, my challenge this week is definitely another new one. And I think I, I might sort of reference this occasionally, Amanda, that there are things that I haven't seen, even though I've been doing this for now over 20 years. But we took over a strata scheme at the end of last year, which had tried to come to us earlier, but there were issues. And eventually, I think it was about two years later, we were appointed. And during that time, the developer had gone into bankruptcy and there was issues with the building, which is still prevalent in terms of defects. And there isn't even a final occupancy certificate issued for this building, unfortunately. So it's really sad for some of the owners because, you know, even though sales are taking place, the values aren't being achieved that really should be achieved for a building of, of this location and, and size of apartments. It was a two-stage development. One half of the apartments had been built. It's like a bit of a, a quadrangle in the middle. And then the second half then was built after the first apartments, I assume, were, were sold. And... The subdivision took place and then we, you know, obviously got the CT, the subdivision. Subdivisions always have a unit entitlement of, of zero because there are new lots that are being created. But on the strata roll, what we discovered was that there were levies owing of about hmm, eighty or 90000 on that lot that had zero unit entitlement. So it was a development lot and then it was subdivided? Yeah, it was one of the lots in the, in the original strata scheme. Oh, okay, right. And then that lot in the strata scheme was then subdivided into new lots. And, um, (laughs) but to our dismay, we saw that in the levy position report, or that was from the other managing agent, that they had a balance owing on that particular lot of 73,000. So, and that was a lot that was owned by the developer at the time who then used that lot to create the new lots, Mm -hmm. which means that those amounts that were owing at that time were not transferred to the new lots. So unfortunately, the owners didn't really understand, the community didn't understand sort of what this meant and they didn't really realise that this was not valid. They had tried to go after the developer in terms of levies, et cetera, but he's now gone to another country. Mm. But apparently he comes back and forth. I don't know what he does. But anyway, so they see his car and one of the apartments is still vacant. And right. But, um, yeah, and so we've gone to the lawyers that they were using for debt recovery and for the whole matter and unfortunately they said there's nothing that we can do about it because you know obviously he's not in the country anymore etc cetera, etc cetera. but in a sense I'm not sure Amanda because the committee have asked me this question what is the liability of the strata managing agent because they're the ones that would have left that amount on that lot it wouldn't have I mean he wouldn't have the mechanical ability to do it in terms of the accounting software and the other thing also that we found which again I've never seen before is that it says two years in a row that there should be an audit done with the accounts and the accounts have never been audited. Mm. So had this occurred, I think the auditor would have picked it up two years ago and perhaps the committee could have done something at the time when he was in the country. So, I mean, there's just so many issues and I'm just, I know you probably maybe haven't come across this, but I'm not sure if any other strata manager out there listening to this story or any other owners corporation has had this happen where a amount of levies 
has been left on the lot account and not been transferred when the lot was subdivided. Mm, Yeah, I certainly haven't come across it. And it does compound into a complex problem. Just going back to perhaps the easiest answer, the audit, this is a an owner's corporation with an annual revenue of over 250,000. So the audit was mandatory. Correct. Yes. I think you're right that it may have been, may have been picked up in audit, uh, simply identifying that this was a lot that was carrying a significant debt. And I'm not sure if there was ever debt recovery action commenced, even prior to the subdivision. Um, We're not aware because the records Mm. are just not in a very coherent manner. And even to this day, we're still trying to get bank statements and things where we've had to actually go to the bank directly. And for any strata managers that are listening, for those that are involved in that aspect of transfers between managing agents, um, the banks actually will not provide any statements unless the managing agent gives their consent. And I suppose in a sense I was trying to come to terms with this concept. Well, hang on, it's the owners corporation is the entity that it's their bank account. Although if you look at the terminology on all bank statements, it'll say, the managing agent in trust for strata plans. So I suppose in a sense the agent is a trustee of, of those funds. But anyway, of course, we were, like they gave us consent to get the final bank statement. But the issue is I think, Amanda, do you think there would be any action against the previous managing agent in relation to the fact that there were no audits completed even though, as you said, it's mandatory and there were resolutions in their AGMs to have this completed? Look, it's hard to say whether the apparent loss that's now being suffered, and that doesn't even sound like it's clear-cut in itself, whether or not the owners' corporation can claim for this lost income is essentially what it is. It's not clear whether that loss is because of a failure to carry out audits as instructed, and that would be the key point to have to prove if this owner's corporation was going to successfully point the finger at the former managing agent. It's all well and good in a claim like that to say, well, the managing agent should have followed instructions, the audit should have been done. It's very clear in our legislation in New South Wales that for an owner's corporation with a revenue over $250,000 a year, they must get their accounts audited each year. But what's not clear is whether the failure to do that has led to the present inability to recover some $70,000, $70,000, I think you mm. said, in levy income. But also, Amanda, my other query is obviously the agent, I mean, someone in terms of the accounting and journals, et cetera, would have left this amount on there. So that couldn't have been done by anyone but the agent. I don't know if it was under the instructions of the developer or was it the fact that they just didn't know what they were doing. So even if we go pre-audit, the fact that this amount just sat on a subdivision through some journal that would have been created to allow this or to leave it at that, I think there's, we sort of go back even one step before that. Well, if we think about the process of a normal sale from one owner to another, it is part of the conveyancing process that the purchaser who is buying makes sure that they are getting the title clear of any encumbrances any debts, any levies owing, any other mortgage on that title, they're making sure they're getting a free and clear title. And we have both contractual obligations around that to make sure the vendor, the person who's selling, provides certain documents, does certain things, proves that they have paid certain debts before the purchaser takes on the title. Now, a subdivision is less common and certainly not a process that I'm often involved in. 
But in registering a strata plan of subdivision and creating new strata lots from the single lot, which is the process that I believe has happened here, there would be similar steps to follow to make sure that that title that you are then subdividing is unencumbered. And it sounds to me like it's that part in the process, knowing nothing more than what you've just told me now, it's that part in the process that has been messed up somewhere along the lines where this levy due and owing by that owner of that lot has not been picked up and it hasn't been discharged before the subdivision was registered. Yeah, so normally what would happen, Amanda, is that if a lot is subdivided, I think one of the questions that people have come to me about is, well, on the Section 184 certificate, which is the section of the Act that is a statement that we provide to both the vendor and the incoming purchaser's solicitor or conveyancer. Now, on those records, there was zero owing because that amount oh. was sitting on a different lot. So let's say the new strata plan is you've got three lots, say lots one, two, three, and SP, ABC. That amount was not transferred to those three lots. So when they bought the apartments, there was no levy owing. So they couldn't pay it. So I don't know if that was an error by the strata manager who did not transfer it. It should have been paid out before Correct. the subdivision. Yeah. yeah. It would have been those, that lot still had that amount of levies. How and the- that subdivided lot now no longer exists. Exactly. So that's what the lawyers are then telling you there's nothing yes. you can do. I am following it now. Yeah, and plus also the fact that, I mean, even though we could come back and say, well, hang on, what happened there? You know, there would have to be some paper trail of how this subdivision occurred and obviously it has to be registered with the LRS, et cetera. So I think the fact that he's not even in the country is also hindering mm. their ability to even get to the bottom of it. Yeah, it's an interesting one from the professional perspective, but, yeah, it's the kind of mess that I think will need to be sorted out with some specific legal advice and perhaps legal advice from a third-party professional who was not involved in any of these transactions to be able to have a good objective look at how it all worked out. Exactly. Yeah, thank you, Amanda. But you know, I must say, like, no, because one of our team members saying, well, why can't we, you know, go back to those owners? So those owners would have had a zero thing on their Section 184, so they, they haven't not paid anything because they weren't asked to pay it at the time they purchased it So because we're sitting on a different lot. so Absolutely. It's newly yeah. created. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I would love to know how this one <laughs> works out, Rena. It's a lot of money, I imagine, for this building to walk it away is. from. Probably worth the investment and some advice. Yes, definitely. Let us know how it all turns out. Moving on to my challenge for this week. I have turned my mind to this particular issue before. I'm not sure if I've mentioned it on the podcast, but it has come up two or three times in the last few weeks. So I thought I'd bring it back for further discussion. The preparation of a general meeting agenda and the placing of motions on that agenda. This is what my challenge is about this week. Who is entitled to put motions on the agenda of a general meeting? Now, I think many of our very well-educated listeners will know that a lot owner is entitled under our New South Wales legislation to require a motion to go on the agenda of a general meeting. They have to make sure that the wording of that motion is sent through to the secretary, usually the strata manager, if there is one, prior to the agenda going out. And as long as the strata manager is receiving that motion together with an explanatory note, then the strata manager must comply with that request and put the motion on the agenda. That's in our legislation. But who else, if anyone, is entitled to put motions on the agenda? 
Are strata managers legally able to place motions on the agenda of general meetings? In the last couple of weeks, this has come up for me in the context of strata managers proposing motions for their own reappointment. Their agency agreement is expiring and they would like the owners to consider a further three-year contract and they are putting that motion on the agenda I'm told in these situations I'm thinking of without receiving any instruction from an owner or from the strata committee to place that motion on the agenda. And I'm being asked the question, Amanda, is that legal? Can our strata manager do that? And of course, it is the cause for some conflict where the building in particular does not want to reappoint the strata manager, has motions of its own, proposing one or two alternate strata managing agents and never asked for this motion to go on the agenda. Rena, I don't know if you recall our past discussions on this or if you have a view on this. Yeah, we have discussed this, Amanda. Well, obviously, a strata managing agent really cannot put their own motion for their own reappointment on the agenda. I mean, really, in a sense, depending on their agency agreement and what delegated authority they do have, I mean, really, they have to just ask the committee regarding any general meeting motion, even an AGM, like a lot of owners come to me and say to me from other companies that they've experienced where the, the strata manager just sends out the AGM agenda, doesn't even ask them if they're available, they don't even ask them what levies they're proposing, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a, a bit of a misunderstanding in terms of an agent's authority, but definitely in terms of your own reappointment as a managing agent, you really need to come and ask the owners corporation you know like and there's a there is a requirement three months before the expiry to let the owners corporation know through the strata committee that it's expiring and annual you know practices to say you know would you like us to continue if you do what term would you like um obviously there's a negotiation in terms of that aspect perhaps but i think that a lot of strata managers don't really understand what their authority is and i think this is part of the problem i think with a lot of people that come into the industry and retention of good staff, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this is also being born in the, that recent Macquarie Bank benchmarking report in terms of burnout of staff. And I think there's a lot of people that just don't really understand how the Act works and they really haven't been trained, Amanda, on how it works. I think sometimes it's part of it too. Mm, yeah, I agree with you. And, look, overall I agree strata managers should not be proposing any motions for a meeting agenda without receiving instructions from an owner. And I think it's arguable as to the strata committee's authority to instruct a managing agent to put motions on the agenda. I think as a matter of practicality, it has to be the case that the strata committee has authority to instruct the managing agent to put certain motions on. As you've alluded to there, there are some mandatory motions that must go on the agenda of each general meeting. And it surely can't be right that a lot owner has to requisition those motions in order for them to go on. So I think the rule of thumb should be unless you have an instruction, clear instruction from the committee or from a lot owner as to what goes on that agenda, then you don't start proposing motions, especially not motions that are in your own commercial interest. I don't think there's any problem with preparing a draft agenda, circulating that for instructions. But I'm glad you've raised this, Rena, because I'm seeing this too, agendas going out without committees, even seeing them, without committees approving them. And you mentioned their levies being proposed without committee authorization, without committees signing off on draft budgets. Exactly that came up just within the last week in a building where I'm acting for an owner. There's an AGM coming up. The draft agenda has been circulated and there are levies proposed. But when I saw the draft, I said to my client, well, that's great that levies are proposed, but where's the draft budget? 
surely we don't know what levies we need to raise until we've seen what the budget is. My client went back and asked the strata manager, and my client is a committee member, went back and asked the strata manager, can we please have a draft budget? And the strata manager said, the proposed budget will be attached to the agenda when it is sent out. In writing. That was in writing, in an email. It's now in my inbox. And that's just terrifying. Mm. Strata managers do not set budgets. They may assist and, and really should, I believe, be assisting their owners' corporations with their budgeting, prepare a draft, circulate it to the committee well in advance of the meeting and get instructions on that budget. There may be things the committee wants to change. The committee may have questions. It is a budget that's being proposed. It is not a budget that is already set by the manager or even by the committee. Owners have to vote on it. You're absolutely right, Amanda, and I think this is a problem also with portfolio sizes because when the strata manager has like, you know, 70 buildings or whatever, then it's very hard for that process that we're talking about to take place. I mean, also, even when a strata manager is proposing a budget, they need to provide explanatory notes or documentation in terms of like, well, the contractual amounts that you're paying, say, for maintenance on certain matters so that, you know, the committee understands how these figures are being calculated. And also, when the committee understands how the figures are being calculated, and then it's presented to an AGM, then at least then there's some background knowledge and authority in terms of speaking for the adoption of the budget because if the committee aren't aware of how this budget was calculated then, and then it's being put forward to the owners then how can the committee really support or endorse what's been put forward and as you said sometimes it, it may not be correct it may need amendment there could be things that haven't been thought about and I think also what I find Sometimes when we propose budgets and the owners didn't want to try and, you know, obviously cut it down because it's too much and the levies are going up. You know, Sarah Smith, my colleague, has always used this really good way of trying to address such concerns. So, okay, tell me where you want, what services do you want to reduce from this budget? What do you want to cut out? Because sometimes it does come down to that where it's such a tight budget really, that, you know, do you want to get rid of this? Do you want to get rid of your cleaner? Does someone want to bring the bins in? Like <laughs> we're coming into this sort of like, oh, this is obviously an extreme case that I'm talking about, but sometimes, you know, people do want us to reduce our budget, say, for repairs or plumbing when, you know, in the last three years I've spent 20000 per annum and it's just going up and up. And as we all know, as managing agents for insurance now, I mean, if there's any whiff of any issue in terms of risk where anything that's prevalent in terms of, you know, reoccurrence, water penetration, you know, you're lucky to get just the incumbent insurer giving you three or six months cover once mm. they've been made aware of a problem. So, you know, having this burden of obtaining insurance and then having them try and put forward meaningful budgets is really important. And also it's an asset. Like, I mean, I don't know what asset one would expect to have to increase in value without maintaining it. I don't know how, like, we all want to get paid more money in our jobs and in our profession. So I don't know why I think everyone thinks that a building that's aging really needs less money. I mean, even human beings as they age need more medication, <laughs> medication, <laughs> health care. <laughs> exactly. Yep. I mean, how much is a hip replacement for the taxpayer? I mean, it's a lot of money. <laughs> I like your analogy there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look, it's uh, an issue of itself, accurate budgeting, but certainly strata managers wanting to protect themselves from criticism should not be placing any motions on the agenda without having those either requisitioned by an owner or signed off by the committee, even when it comes to things that might seem straightforward for strata managers. Setting levies, budgeting, get instructions. Your client decides, you advise. That's it. Exactly. 
Okay, shifting over to your win for this week, Rena. Well, my win for this week, Amanda, um, comes from a long-standing NCAT application that was submitted about a year ago by an owner. Even though the works have been completed and we're talking about substantial works, that lot owner is not happy with, you know, some of the works that were done. You know, we had the superintendent engineer come out, do an inspection on a number of occasions, and, you know, he just didn't agree with what was being suggested as to the cause of um, or to ingress and anyway and so the matter just then was action was taken I think twofold one was against the owners corporation and one against the builder but the application was to make the owners corporation a party to the proceedings that this owner was um, putting forward so without going too much into detail at this stage after six various appearances throughout the year to last month we actually um, had a hearing where the owner then tried to seek an adjournment and obviously had to present evidence again as to why the matter should be adjourned and the hearing not proceed. And luckily, despite all the efforts of that owner, the application for the adjournment was dismissed. So the matter obviously did end up proceeding. The, the hearing then was concluded and obviously now we're waiting for the decision of the tribunal. But I think it was a good win because Sometimes, you know, when owners aren't happy with the outcome, they try and bring up other issues that sort of are designed to, in a sense, track away from the issue at hand. And I think the request for an adjournment was on the basis that some information hadn't been provided to him. But after two hours and 15 minutes exactly, um, the application was for the adjournment was dismissed. So, yeah, so the Owners Corporation and the committee were very happy with that and now we just await the decision of the hearing. Yeah, there is a bit to be said there about the length of litigation and how long it takes for these matters to progress through our tribunal. I was asked that earlier this week by a client who's looking at potentially commencing tribunal proceedings and this person had had a look at the NCAT website and said, oh, Amanda, I read somewhere it says something like four to six weeks. And this person had interpreted that as, oh, it takes four to six weeks from the time I lodged my application to get a decision. That is not what it takes. I think the reference to four to six weeks on the NCAT website is from the time you file your application to the date of your first directions hearing. And I've heard you just say there, Rena, you had about six appearances before the tribunal. These were proceedings that were commenced more than 12 months ago. It is taking at least, I'm telling clients, at least nine months to get through a fully defended application before the tribunal. That means getting to the end of a final hearing. And that is if there's no hiccups along the way, no requests for adjournments, no adjournments granted, no interim applications filed. And we must remember for most cases to add to that at the very beginning, a period for mediation. And if you're going to apply for mediation through fair trading and mediation is mandatory before commencing most tribunal applications, Fair trading is still taking about three months from the time you file your mediation application to the date of your mediation. So we're now looking at 12 months. If you count that period from filing mediation to the end of a final hearing, at least 12 months to get a hearing. And that's not even a result. The member may then reserve their decision, as it sounds like they've done in your case, Rena, and take some weeks, if not some months, to deliver that decision. Yeah, well, I think, Amanda, the other sort of um, misnomer that exists in the tribunal and the whole fair trading space is that this is a free service for owners. So there's no, like, you don't have to pay a fee to lodge a mediation application like you had to many years ago. Mm. And I think this whole thing of people thinking it's free 
and therefore it's a low cost avenue of resolving disputes. It's quick, like you've said, and it's actually it could be nothing could be further from the truth in terms of that aspect. Because even though you can self represent yourself, on so you can in a court of law as well. I mean, in this particular case, there were three experts. So we had the owners corporation had, had its engineer, the applicant had their engineer. And then the builder had their engineer. So we have three engineers and we there's an order for a, you know, Scott schedule and a conclave report. Then each person had gone and given their own. In, I mean, this was actually costing so much money. Even the senior member said, please remember that this case is costing having, you know, lawyers and barristers and engineers. This case is costing more than the repairs itself in terms of the quantum. So... And, you know, obviously an offer had been made beforehand to settle the matter, which was refused. But And even an offer was undertaken by what all the experts had agreed was the issue in terms of there was one minor defect, and which all three engineers had agreed was a case. And even though that builder had gone and said, I'll come and fix this, the owner refused and said that we need to wait till the end cap proceedings are over. So, I mean, if, if there is that damage that's been purported to be occurring, then you think that, okay, let's get that done first and let's wait for any other things that may come out of the decision of the senior member. So, you know, like you said, Amanda, these things are quite protracted and they're quite costly for lot owners in terms of, because if you think about it, even though the laws of evidence don't apply in the strict court sense, the tribunal prescribes how evidence needs to be presented, what information is required. And, you know, and so apart from the hearing itself, they obviously need to look at documents that support assertions made by either side so it's not just a thing of just you know like you said four to six weeks and and I mean think about like you know for any legal defense claim the insurers don't pay the cost of the strata managing agent so I mean I was there eight hours so like the owners corporation has to pay that cost and you know they're, they're just grateful and thankful that, I, that I'm able to sit there for that time and help them and you know because I'm across the whole matter and my statement was the principle, apart from the engineers, that the case is dependent on my statement and my evidence. But and a lot of owners and communities that worry that I might resign because of the pressure that I'm being put under, and then said to Marina, "Please, you know, don't leave us." It's like, don't worry, it's okay. It's my job. <laughs> yeah, that's your job. That's right, and that's what you're paid to do. And that's a, a way a professional looks at it. Of course, where you are a defendant to litigation, it is very difficult to have a lot of control over that process. Making offers to settle subject to whatever advice you're getting is often a good idea. But if you are an applicant or thinking about becoming an applicant, please do listen carefully to what Rena and I are saying about the realities of litigation. It's certainly something I prepare my clients for when they're looking at taking that step. I am one of those lawyers who says, Avoid the tribunal or court if that's the correct jurisdiction at all costs. It, in my mind, should be an avenue of last resort. Sometimes it is necessary in order to preserve rights if there's time frames and things like that, or you are just hitting a brick wall. But this is what you're facing when you do take that step, and you got to be prepared for that as best you can as an applicant in litigation. Thank you, Amanda. My win for this week, I was asked by a strata manager inside our members Q&A forum about how to manage general discussion at meetings, specifically general meetings. This strata manager was facing difficulties where the owners wanted to propose motions for the agenda, in this case, to discuss various 
items. And the motion was framed in that way to discuss, but then the manager was finding at the meeting, and this was happening quite consistently, at the meeting, those present were then coming to conclusions after their discussion and making decisions and wanting to action items, whether it was to agree to do certain work or sign contracts or instruct somebody. And this manager was concerned that taking those steps was actually not legal because there was no motion on the agenda to do those things, to take that action, to engage that contractor. Rather, the motion on the agenda was to discuss. And the manager said to me, Amanda, how do I handle this? Am I right? I've been telling this community that they can't go about their general meetings like this. And my answer was, you are right. You are, as difficult as it might be, doing the right thing by telling these owners no. The motion is to discuss the item the resolution is therefore that the item was discussed. And to the extent you come up with some action steps from that discussion, then a further meeting will need to be convened, whether that's a committee meeting or a general meeting, depending on what you've discussed. And there must be a motion put forward to take that action, enter that contract, engage that person, do that thing. Rena, do you find communities getting off track with discussions, particularly at general meetings? Yeah, I mean, I think for smaller schemes, sometimes they like to put on those motions, but I, I always tell them that's fine as long as you know that discussion is not a resolution. So you can discuss what you want to do, but in terms of, as you said, Amanda, and come up with some action points like getting quotes, but definitely, and I, and I tell them because people that weren't at the meeting don't have knowledge or any notice of what may be decided or agreed, and therefore they're at a disadvantage. And had they known that you were going to like discuss and then approve a quote, then they would have come. So that's why the Act is quite specific in terms of putting people on notice, why there's an agenda time period in terms of notices, et cetera. And um, definitely when it's discussed, I'll just say, if you want an outcome, then don't put on for discussion. Just raise it at the meeting and then we can go ahead and then say this matter was raised like out of the meeting and we, managing agent was asked to get quotes, et cetera. But it's, if you want any resolution as such, then there's no point putting it on there apart from the context of just a discussion. Mm, yes. I love that summary. Thank you. And thank you for pointing out that it is actually in our act that there must be notice of motions for anybody wanting to refer to that. It is in clause 18 of schedule one to our strata schemes management act. A motion must not be submitted at a general meeting if a requirement to give notice of that motion has not been met. That's my summary. And I was able to point this particular strata manager to that clause in the schedule to confirm that yes, the manager was acting in accordance with the law by telling these owners that they shouldn't be making these decisions for all the reasons that you have summarised there too. Rena, thank you for that. Thanks, Amanda. Alrighty, gosh, we've covered a lot today. Love these chats. Thank you so much, Rena Van Els, for joining me, sharing our wins and challenges. I'm already looking forward to the next time. Me too, Amanda. I'll catch you then. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at yourstrataproperty.com.au.